0: Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, while you're turning there, let me again uh, remind you uh, where we are uh, in this sermon series. We're doing a, a brief series on uh, the offices of elder and deacon, uh, sort of in a, a run-up towards uh, particularization. Again, that's fancy, fancy Presbyterian speak for... Uh, grow up and have your own uh, church officers, your own elders. Um, we've looked so far uh, at Christ as the model elder uh, in John 10, the Good Shepherd. Uh, we've looked at uh, the qualifications for elder, what an elder do- uh, is, uh, and, and the requirements, uh, the expectations of the office of elder, uh, what an elder does. This morning, uh, we'll turn our attention to the office of deacon Uh, And we'll look at Matthew 11, uh, the first six verses. Uh, If you're using the hardback Bible, you should find it on page 816. Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would open our hearts and minds to understand Your Word, but more importantly, to love it, to be changed by it, to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I don't remember the order. I should have looked up the order, I suppose. You can always Google these sorts of things. But Orlando, Paris, Brussels. Anytime you hear about uh, terrorist attacks somewhere in the world or events that seem like an act of terror somewhere in the world, even if it's not, even if you're not really sure. I mean, when you, when you hear of these things, when you get news reports of, of acts of great violence and terror in places like in nightclubs, like in Orlando and Paris and Brussels, you ask yourself a question. You inevitably have this question running through your mind. You may not even realize you, that, that it's there, that you're asking it. It gets asked on the news as well. It's asked publicly. It's, it's always part of the consideration as you deal with these acts of terror. The question is, is this a one-time event? Is, just, is this just a, a one-off event? Is this a... Uh, just somebody acting on their own, looking for some sort of uh, publicity, or uh, disconnected from everything else going on in the world, or is it part of a larger systematic plot to take over the world or to cause damage in more places than than just this? Is this just a, a one-time event? one person acting on their own, or is it part of a, a larger systematic plot? It's a reasonable question to ask. I think it's a, a fair and safe question to ask, and for that matter, it's a, it's a wise question to ask. It's also a, a reasonable question to ask of Jesus. You read of, of the acts of Christ in the Gospels, and it is a reasonable question to say, Is this a one-time, one-off event? Is this this a a temporary thing? Or is this part of a, a larger, systematic plan or plot of some sort? For that matter, this passage gives us a glimpse into the answer to that question. Notice, first of all, the question that John asks. John the Baptist is in prison this is John John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer. It's John the Baptist John. Uh, he's in prison and has been presumably for a year or so at this point. And he's, he recognizes he's facing death. He recognizes that he is facing certain uh, death and, and destruction. He's there because he's called out Herod, the the local ruler for killing his brother, stealing his brother's wife, you know, no big deal. John the Baptist stood up to say, hey, this is wrong. This is sin. You can't do this. And so naturally they said, well, let's throw him in prison. His disciples have been allowed to visit him. They've been in and out. They're giving him reports of of what all Jesus is doing, verse 2, John has heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, his his first cousin according to the flesh. And so there he has this question. Jesus, are You the one? Are You the one that we're supposed to be looking for? Or should I go looking for someone else? It's a a reasonable question. Question. I mean, you're in jail and Joel Osteen tells me I'm supposed to have my best life now. This doesn't look like my best life now. If I'm going to give up my life for this, then I better be certain that Jesus is worthy of giving up my life. I mean, I better make sure I'm following the right guy. It's a, it's a reasonable question. It, it is, in reality, it is his way of asking is this a one-time deal, or is this a part of a larger systematic plan or plot? Jesus, are, are what you the things that you're doing, are they part of the work of the Messiah, or are they these sort of random acts that, that maybe I'm following the wrong person? John's personal situation is a problem. If you're looking for the wrong Messiah, his personal situation, his, his, his being trapped in jail, his being imprisoned is really only a problem if you're, you have the wrong idea of what Jesus should be doing. In his mind, Jesus should be establishing Israelite borders. He should be reestablishing Israel's borders and, and taking the throne and throwing off the the oppression of Rome and reestablishing Israel as a nation, as a country. He's looking for a an earthly king. Jesus, I'm, I'm in jail for you. If you really are going to be this earthly king, then shouldn't you deliver me? Shouldn't you get me out of here? That's his concern. That's his fear. That's his question. It's, it's what his... This is what the Israelites generally expected. They expected an earthly king. Jesus doesn't exactly fit John's expectation. That's John's question. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus has an answer for him in verses 4 and 5. He answers, uh, tells the disciples of John, go back and tell him what you hear and see. You get the sense... um, that not only have they heard reports of what Jesus is doing, but you get the sense here, but it's it's a little clearer in Luke 7. We, by the way, preached this passage two and a half years ago, July or so of 2014, we preached Luke's parallel passage um, with a slightly different aim, slightly different emphasis. But you get the sense that Jesus actually performs some of these miracles in the presence of John's disciples. In Luke's Gospel, he says, in that very hour, he's doing these things. So, his answer, his response to John is, you want evidence that I'm the one, that I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who is to come, I'm the promised deliverer of Israel. Here's your evidence. Go back and tell John The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the the mute speak, those with sickness and disease are healed, lepers are cleansed, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. There's your evidence. Go back and tell John the things that you see and hear here and remind him that this is the evidence. That I am the Messiah. That I am the one who is to come. I don't know about you, but I think if I had been in John's shoes, keep in mind, the Gospels aren't written yet. He's living the Gospels, right? I mean, he's, he's living the events that Matthew's recording that's not been recorded yet. Paul hasn't written Romans and, and Ephesians and Colossians yet. There's no revelation yet. This None of those exist at the time that John is in prison. If I had been in John's shoes, I'm afraid that that answer would not have been enough for me. It would have been lacking. Like, I would have missed the point. I would not have made the connection that that Jesus clearly wants John to make. The problem is with me, not with Jesus' response. Let me show you why these are actually comforting words to John the Baptist. Let me show you why this actually should have assured John, okay, Jesus is the one who is to come. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 61. Keep in mind that John would have had a a much better grasp of the Old Testament than you and I. John would have had a much better understanding of... These words would have triggered memories in his mind. They may have triggered Isaiah 29, I think it was we read earlier as our Old Testament reading. They probably, they should have triggered the words of Isaiah 61. Look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's... These words would have echoed in John's mind when he heard Jesus' response. He would have gone back through all these various passages of, of hope and deliverance in Isaiah and would have been reminded, oh, wait, 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 the blind see, the captives are set free, the poor have good news proclaimed to them, I know this passage. The year of the Lord's favor is here now. John would have, John would have made that Connection. In other words, according to Jesus, the evidence that He is indeed the One is not so much in the sermons He preached, but in the miracles that He performed. The evidence comes in the very tangible uh, form of healing blind eyes, of of granting life to those who are dead, of Proclaiming deliverance to captives, setting free uh, those who are in prison. The death here, this is evidence in Jesus' mind that the year of the Lord's favor is here. That, That Christ really is the promised Messiah. Here's the evidence, I do and accomplish the very things that Isaiah says I will do and accomplish. I'm worthy and able to accomplish your salvation because I'm doing the very things that Isaiah says I would be doing. You see John's question. You see Jesus' answer. That leads, by the way, to our question, a question that you and I have of this passage. Is Jesus using spiritual metaphors or is he actually meaning physical healing? does jesus is Jesus using here spiritual imagery, or is he actually talking about physical deliverance? You read verses four and five, and you and I get this. we, we are quick to recognize the the spiritual imagery, the spiritual connection there that Jesus makes. In fact, that for many of us, that might be our first thought. We think to ourselves, wait, when I hear poor, I immediately run to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and the poor in spirit. Or when I hear the blind, I immediately think of of I once was lost, but now, I, and now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I immediately run to amazing grace. I've never actually been physically blind, so maybe I shouldn't be allowed to sing that hymn. Well, no, it's it's, it's a spiritual image, a spiritual metaphor. Paul uses uh, the captivity language when he speaks of our being in bondage and slavery to sin and delivered by Christ. He uses resurrection language when he speaks of our being dead in our trespasses and sins and made alive together with Christ. All that's spiritual imagery. It uses very physical Uh, sickness and disease in various forms, uh, physical conditions as metaphors for spiritual healing and restoration. That's not just a, a New Testament reality. We find it throughout the Old Testament. The Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37 is not so much about the Valley of Dry Bones as it is about the restoration of Israel to their land. And in that sense, a picture of spiritual life being brought to those who are dead and hopeless apart from the gracious work of God's Holy Spirit. We get it. We understand that there are times in Scripture when physical problems are used as metaphors for spiritual condition. Even in... John 9, Jesus is going to heal a blind man. And there, immediately turn that imagery on the Pharisees and say, His blindness is a lot like your blindness. His inability to see is a lot like your inability to recognize me as the promised Messiah. It's not at all uncommon for for physical problems to be used as pictures, evidence, Illustrations of very real spiritual conditions. So our question, as we read this, we ask, wait, 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 is Jesus having a is this a a spiritual image that he means, or is he talking more than that? Is it is he using merely physical problems as a, a, a picture of our spiritual Condition. We were dead and made alive in Christ. We were blind and unable to see him until he gave us sight. We were deaf and couldn't hear his word until he unstopped our ears. Or does he actually mean physical sickness and disease? You see, John's question, Jesus' answer, which leads us to our question. And lastly, I want you to see the Bible's answer to our question. John Piper in in writing about this passage and others like it says there are two ways that we might misuse this passage. One is to, to limit the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed to physical social states only. We know denominations that 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 thrive off of that. They have, in many ways, punted the, the, the truth of Scripture, the, the doctrines of, of Christ in God's Word. They've, they've managed to twist and tangle and turn them in ways that they can sort of shake off the, the shackles of what the Bible teaches and have focused almost exclusively on physical and social uh, needs and problems but it would be equally wrong to take these passages, to take words like these and make them only spiritual so that all we ever do is is get together and have Bible study and do nothing at all to care for the needs of those around us. If we treat these as merely spiritual illustrations we will retreat into our own rooms, our own Bible studies, and never actually interact with the world around us. It's a a misunderstanding of these words of this passage. Let me show you, in Matthew, uh, Matthew makes this connection for us, even in the way he's organized his gospel. If you back up just... Two chapters. For me, I can flip one piece of paper back to Matthew 9. And we get evidence there that what Jesus is saying in uh, Matthew 11 isn't just, isn't merely spiritual. It is that, but it isn't only that. Look at Matthew 9. And we won't even read huge chunks of Matthew 9. You can just almost scroll down through. The headings in your Bible. In Matthew 9, there's a a paralyzed man. A man unable to walk. Jesus heals him. Forgives his sins. And then, as evidence that he can forgive sins, says, get up and walk. Later in the chapter, Jesus is actually on his way to bring a, a dead young girl back to life and is touched by a lady who's been bleeding for 12 years. And she's immediately healed. He turns and has a, a very brief conversation with her and then continues on his way and goes in to this young girl who's, who's lying there on the bed and she's, she's gone. She's passed away. And Jesus says oh, she's, she's really just asleep and He takes her hand and, and up she comes back to life restored to life in the very next passage Jesus heals two blind men and then immediately on the heels of that a demon possessed man who's unable to speak it's almost as though we get to Matthew 11 and Matthew has arranged his 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 gospel in such a way that we are already prepared for the question in Matthew eleven. That he essentially says to us, "You want evidence that Jesus is the one? That Jesus is the Messiah? You've You've read it already. He heals the blind. He brings the dead to life. He makes the lame to walk. He heals paralyzed people, and the deaf and the mute speak. And demons are cast out. You want evidence that Jesus is the one?" These miracles that he's been performing are proof and evidence that he is the promised Messiah. (laughs) These would have been the, the unlovely, the unlovable, the social outcasts. These were the people that had to live in communes because... They couldn't with their leprosy just live among the people in town because of that, that disease and, and that they were, they were unclean and had to be set to their own commune. They had to walk down the street ringing bells, shouting warnings that they're coming down the street and cross over to get out of the way of, of people. Paralyzed people the lame. What could they do to, to get themselves anything? They were dependent on other people to care for them. To meet their needs, to take them to Jesus, to feed them, to clothe them. The blind, the deaf, widows, orphans, they're all social outcasts of the day, and from which, from their their condition, there was no escape apart from the great grace of Christ. They're the kinds of people that you and I would avoid if we could. They're the kinds of people that we will look away from if we can. In Isaiah 61, he speaks of the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't mean merely telling people the gospel, but he he means also showing it to them, modeling it to them, giving them proof and evidence that Christ really has come, that Christ has power over the things of this world by granting sight to the blind, by making the lame walk, healing lepers of their horrible disease. Jesus says, yes, I'm a prophet. Yes, I'm a prophet like Isaiah, but I'm nothing like Isaiah because I actually accomplish The very things that he spoke about. The miracles he performs are intended to to prove to us he's not just another Isaiah, but that he is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who is to come. John's evidence that Jesus is worthy of his faith, that Jesus really is the promised Messiah, is found in the fact that Jesus meets the physical needs of those around Him. It's evidenced by the fact that He has power over sickness and disease and everything that sin and the effects of sin can throw at us, including that last great gasp that sin has, death itself. Jesus says, I have power and authority to bring healing and restoration. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf can now hear. Dead people are brought back to life. The poor have good news proclaimed to them. In other words, for Jesus, these miracles aren't one-time, one-off, individual One guy acting on his own kind of acts. They're part of a larger systematic plot and plan. They're part of the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. They're evidence that the kingdom of God is here and that Jesus can accomplish the very forgiveness that He proclaims. Evidence of the reality of the kingdom of Christ is that Christ meets physical needs. What does this have to do with our series and officers in the church? As we deal with elders and deacons, what does, that have, what, is, what does this have to do with that? Here's the picture. Diaconal ministry is evidence of the kingdom of Christ meeting and caring for the physical needs of those around us is evidence that Christ has come, that Christ is the Messiah. That as we serve other people, as we care for those in physical need, we're merely modeling Christ who is the perfect deacon, the complete deacon who cares perfectly even for the physical needs of those around Him. You've heard me say it before. If you were to quiz your children, what has Jesus done for me? My guess is we as parents teach our children He's come to save me from my sins. That's true. That's not all that He's come to do. That's not it. He's come to do more than that. He's come again, you've heard it before, to make His blessings known as far as the curse is found. Wherever sin has created effects, sickness, disease, blindness, leprosy, poverty, wherever sin has come and influenced creation, Jesus comes. He will one day Establish his kingdom finally and fully and completely. We get a glimpse of this, by the way, in Isaiah 61. Jesus in Luke 4 preaches the shortest sermon ever. The sermon is this Today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. That's the extent of his sermon. And he's referring to Isaiah 61. And he read, he had opened the scroll and read, but he stopped reading just before the verse on judgment, on vengeance. That doesn't come until Christ returns. In the meantime, we as His people are sent out to carry out even this mission. To care for those in physical Need, not just spiritual need. It's until he comes back, it's our duty as his body to here on earth to, to meet the physical needs of those around us as God grants us to do so. May God grant to Grace Covenant that we would grow in the likeness of Christ and in our vision for His kingdom established on this earth. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we confess, first of all, that in so many ways it's easier to make Jesus' words in Matthew 11 about spiritual condition. It's a little less dirty. It's a little less messy. It's a little less involved on our part. Father, forgive us for seeking ease and comfort rather than seeking the growth and expansion of Your kingdom. We pray that You would use grace covenant that, that we might get glimpses of darkness being peeled back in this community, through us. That the gospel would not only be proclaimed, that it would be lived and modeled in ways that, that our love for Christ would overflow into a love for those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are dealing with physical effects of living in a fallen and broken world. Father, we pray that you would use us to proclaim the whole gospel to the whole person. For it's in Christ's name that we ask you. Amen.